I guess the thing I've appreciated about John, one of the things, is, is that uh, he's not been selfish about his pulpit. <laughs> and there are many ministers that are. They can't stand the thought of somebody else occupying the center place of attention, and it should be Jesus anyway. But John is not that way. Um, but he, he sort of makes you feel a little bit smaller, you know, about the good looking and the speak anything. And I reminded him several years ago that I actually have a message about Jesus as well, which I speak. So, you know, um, and, and seriously, I know John just did little decry himself a little bit, but uh, for a number of years now, since Tim's been here and I've gotten to know some of you, um, I have had one thing on him. I was ordained back in 1993 by the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And, uh, I, you, you know, in our lives, there are defining moments. Some are defining moments because we choose them, and some of them are thrust upon us. And how we respond to those defines us. So um, I'm going to tell a little story. You know, the great thing about the second service is you... <laughs> Is that, is that I know what time I'm meant to finish, but I know there's not another service coming afterwards. <laughs> Tim was 17, and um, at the school he went to in France called IST, International School of Toulouse, they did a Christmas concert every year, and it was a bit of a shock to me, even though I'm British, going back to European culture and seeing all these drunk Brits singing songs from 1974. It was horrible, but the, the, the young people all had musical things going on as well and songs and whatever and Tim had three friends from church and they did they did um I forget what the songs were Georgia who sang Georgia Georgia you know that one yeah did that one and Tim has they've got this great recording of Tim as a 17 year old with his gravelly voice you know doing the Georgia thing but but he also sang a song called um One Way do you know the song One Way to to live for Jesus it's an old hill song song and he got up and they sang this song. And uh, IST is, is a secular, secular, secular school. And at that point, he nailed his colors to the mast. I'm a Jesus freak. I'm a Jesus follower. He's who I stand for. I will read my Bible and pray. I don't care what you say. And as they finished, there was a hesitation of silence. And then the applause came. They didn't quite know. And it defines Tim. As a son, I tell you, my little heart as a father is going, that's my son, that's my son, that's my son, that's my son. Being a follower of Jesus in front of these secular pagans out there. It's a defining moment. We just had another one in our family as well. You know it. Renske and Tim lost a child at age five days. And how you choose to respond that defines you as a person. You can choose good or you can choose bad. It's a defining moment. In that sense, I read in Ecclesiastes 7, and I almost thought I was going to preach in Ecclesiastes 7, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. You learn stuff in the face of death, which you don't learn when times are good. It's a defining moment in our lives. People will say to me, Andrew, and this is over in England, we feel sorry for you. I said, don't feel sorry for me. Don't even feel sorry for Tim and Renska. They're growing close to the Lord God in their walk it's tremendously hard but don't feel sorry for us it's a thing which is drawing them closer the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting John's ordination next week which is what I was getting to it's going to be a defining moment for him 2 Timothy chapter 4 says in the presence of Jesus and the Lord God I charge you to preach in some supernatural way 
the district, the congregation, his peers, you are going to say, this man is charged as a servant of the Most High to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's embraced it. He's going to define him. Still defines me. That's how I classify myself. A preacher of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an enormous thing. Come out and support him. Seriously. Be there. Pray for him. He's your pastor. But he's going to, in a very special way, he's going to experience something which will define him for the next 25 years of his ministry life. So, <laughs> It's a wonderful thing as well. I wanted to think, what, what do you call this season? Christmas, New Year? In England, we call it Twixmas, because it's betwixt Christmas and New Year. Many Brits love to fly to Spain because it's warm, and you, know, you get some nice weather and go on holiday. And um, There was one year when we thought, oh, well, kids are gone. We can go do that. We'll fly to Spain and go somewhere nice and warm. And then Tim and Renske decided to come and visit and didn't work. So anyway... <laughs> We, we, it wasn't a hardship, trust us. When you've got grandchildren and children who you love, it's always good to have them around. Twixmas, this Sunday, what do you, what do you preach on? Do you do New Year? Do, do you do Christmas? Post-Christmas? Do you do random? And you're a guest speaker as well. You, you know, and you know people and... What do you do? Well, I thought we'd do Christmas and mission. So we're going to look in Philippians chapter 2, and if you want to open your Bibles, you can, you can get to that place in Philippians chapter 2, and um, we'll go through it in just a moment. But before we get to there, what we're going to be talking about is what's sometimes called by the theologians the missio deo, the, the, the mission of God, the sending of God, and how we can participate in that. So what he's done. And it involves us relating to people who aren't like you. The same way that God related to people who aren't like God. <laughs> that's why he sent Jesus, so he could relate to us, yeah? And that's what Philippians 2 is all about. I call it the great transition, or, or crossing the divides, if you will. Crossing the divides. The Christmas story shows us how Jesus already demonstrated this to us. And so we can also break on through to the other side. Oh, that's a song, isn't it? <laughs> break on through and tell other people about Jesus as well. So Christmas is the time we remember that the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. This passage in Philippians 2 gives us the theological background to what I call the center point of human history. Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 4, in the fullness of time or at just the right time, God sent forth his son. This incarnation, this God becoming, taking on flesh is, not just, is, is, in, is in one sense not just the heart of the story, but is really the heart of our Lord in reaching into his creation and it becomes a model for us as to what we should be doing as we reach those around us as well. Some of you know Toy Story. There's a whole theology in Toy Story 1 and 2. You know the movie Toy Stories? For me, it's a Christmas story. It's got some wonderful scenes in it. Look at this first scene, which contrasts two different approaches to a worldview, to what the world is like and what it's all about. And you'll see two different views coming forth. Let's have a look. Look, Jesse, I know you hate me for leaving, but I have to go back. I'm still Andy's toy. Well, if you knew him, you'd understand. You see, Andy's Let me a... guess. Andy's a real special kid. And to him, you're his buddy, his best friend. And when Andy plays with you, it's like, even though you're not moving, you feel like you're alive. Because that's how he sees you.
How long will it last, Woody? Do you really think Andy is going to take you to college? Or on his honeymoon? Andy's growing up. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's your choice, Woody. You can go back. Or you can stay with us and last forever. You'll be adored by children for generations. I love the contrast. I feel alive in the hands of my, my child because versus I can live forever, the lies of stinky Pete. I'm always reminded when I see that of that verse in the Old Testament. It says, one day in your presence is better than a thousand elsewhere. And the lies of stinky Pete are actually, you're adored by church. It's, it's a human dream to build up stuff on this planet to be adored in this planet, whereas the cowgirl knows that when she's in the hands of the one who loves her, that's when she comes alive. There's the two contrasts. And Jesus is sent from heaven so that we can know the reality of eternal life now, of life and living truly. And that's what Christmas is about. There's a second scene in in, in Toy Story, which I want to come to in just, just a moment here. As this human struggle is going on, we find that Woody has been captured and the other's toys and, and the other animals are going to rescue him from, from the, 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 the toy barn. And we see this little scene of how they embark on this rescue. Let's just watch this a moment as well. Hey, guys, why do the toys cross the road? Not now, Ham. Oh, I love riddles. Why? To get to the chicken on the other side! <laughs> Yay! The chicken! Oh well, we tried. We'll have to cross. <gasps> You're not turning me into a mashed potato. I may not be a smart dog, but I know what roadkill is. There must be a safe way. Okay, here's our chance. Ready, set, go! And the rescue is underway. And if you think about Christmas, 
and all the things that had to happen in order for Jesus to get here. I mean, the things that could have gone wrong from when God first promised to Eve that her seed would bite the serpent, the heel, bruise his heel, other way around. When, when Abraham's seed is promised that he will be a blessing to all the nations. When David's seed is said he'll be the king of all the nations. And all the things that could have gone wrong through all the lines of history as it follows through. How did God manage to get it all right? There's even a passage in, in Jeremiah 23 where one of the kings of Israel, the last king to sit on the throne of Israel, a chap called Jeconiah or Kaniah, God says, I'll rip you out of a stone on my sneak ring. You'll never reign. And you suddenly think, oh, God's plan is thwarted. How's he going to have a king from David if the descendants of Kaniah are never going to sit on the throne? It's not going to happen. And you read Matthew and you read Matthew's genealogy for Jesus and you see, of Jesus and, and through his father Joseph and you see Joseph is born of David through and you go and Kaniah's there and, and after that there's no more kings in the nation of Israel and yes Matthew and Jesus is going to be the king but then you read the gospel of Luke in chapter 3 and it says that Mary was the son of, was the son of, was the son of and it goes, it avoids Kaniah and it goes back not through Solomon, the son of David, but through Nathan, the son of David. And so in a rather unique and special way, you have Joseph and Mary. And Jesus is the legitimate son of David through his mother, Mary, as the king of the nations. And he's the son of God because he's, she's been brought to bear child through the Holy Spirit. You had somebody doing the Gospel of Ruth, the Book of Ruth, I should say, recently, right? Was it, was it good? I watched it on the internet. We do that on Sunday afternoons. We go to church in the morning, and we, we often come and watch the service in the afternoon and um, to watch, hear John speak and see what he's got to say, and it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> and we try and watch Tim a little bit as well, but, you know. But that Ruth one was superb. Every time I get worried that there's seven and a half billion people on this planet and God really can't be in charge, I read the book of Ruth, and then I read Genesis chapter 37, the story of Tamar, and then I read Matthew chapter 1 and go, no, God, how on earth did they know to write down the book of Ruth a thousand years before Jesus was born? So they, oh, because God was putting the details together so that Jesus was born at just the right time, and he knew the plan of history as well. And I can rest assured that me, little old Andy Berry, is in the right place at the right time, and God's still sovereign, and he's fiddling around in the affairs of men still. And I get encouraged. So the book of Philippians, in many ways, is this story of God's rescue plan. Sorry, Christmas is the story of God's rescue plan. And we read this passage in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, and we see that Christmas demonstrates the heart of our God because as Jesus, the Word, became flesh. So it shows what God is like. Look at me in verse 5 as we read verses 5 through 7 together, 5 through 8 together. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have God leaving, Jesus leaving, the word leaving heaven, leaving his glory, leaving his place of status, leaving the fact that he was with the Father and with the Son, involved in creation, planning salvation. And he's the one who became flesh, left behind transitioned across, took on something new. Planned, executed, Jesus came. He demonstrates the heart of our Lord. God was prepared to come rescue his fallen creation, his world, his humanity, which has gone astray. That's what Christmas is about. In the book of Matthew, it says his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Not just God telling us. Not just him arriving and go, you're all sinners, get straightened out. That's religiosity. No, this is Jesus becoming man. Relating to us. Dying on a cross for us. Being humble, being a servant. Christmas demonstrates how God provides salvation. He demonstrates the heart of our Lord towards us. Secondly, as we see in verse 8, which we just read again, I'll read it again for you. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christmas demonstrates the great transition God made because Jesus came to die. Now, I can guarantee you, if you're a parent, none of you wants to have parents whose children come to die. You don't plan that in your life, especially not after only five days. In fact, none of us want our children, they want them to come and live, right? Little side note to parents, huh? I call it VFM, value for money. You've got a lot of money invested in your kids, enjoy them for heaven's sakes. (laughs) Get some value out of them, enjoy them. That's an aside, that's a parenting tip. (laughs) But Jesus was born to die. No wonder a sword pierced Mary's heart, as it records in the book of Luke, chapter 2. Jesus came to die. So Christmas demonstrates the heart of our God, Emmanuel, the word became flesh. Christmas demonstrates this wonderful transition as God becomes flesh and flesh which is going to be a humble and servant and and die. This great transition, not just a little insy bits, oh he's coming in glory, he'll do that later on incidentally, but coming to die as a human on a cross which he didn't deserve. He died as a man didn't have to die he died on a cross the worst form of death cursed is the one who dies on the cross Paul writes in the book of Galatians he died as the ultimate act of humility he died out of obedience Hebrews says that he he learned suffering as obedience by obedience as a son he died on a cross he died out of obedience he died so that we wouldn't have to taste death Hebrews 2 verse 9 
He tasted it for us. We don't have to. He died that we might have life. So even though we don't think that we're born to die, we all will die, but Jesus, who we think should be all born to live, he does die, so this great transaction can occur. I get his life, he got my death. I get life from God, the very life of God, he gets the separation, got the separation from God, because that's what death is. He thought of others, not himself. He served others. He sacrificed himself. And through that sacrifice, he glorified God. God gets all the glory in that process. Christmas, as we continue in the next verses, verses 9 through 11, shows us that God will exalt Jesus, his servant and his son. As, as he crossed that barrier, as he left heaven, as he came down to earth, as he suffered as he humbled himself as he became a servant as he died it resulted in the father's glory look with me in verses 9 through 11 therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father the names of Jesus continue in the book of Luke don't they his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. His name will be Jesus, the Savior, because he died. His name will be Son of the Most High God, Luke 1, verse 32 and verse 35, because he will be, or is presently, and will, we will know it in the future, the most highly exalted one. Exalted as the Son, the equal representative. You see, as we're in Christ we get exalted because he's the first amongst many brothers and sisters. Exalted through his resurrection to life, the first one to come to life and never die again. We say Lazarus died and rose to life, but he died again. That's pretty miserable, isn't it? Dying twice. <laughs> Jesus died and rose and never dies. He's eternally alive. Philippians does this wonderful thing and says that we will get a body likened to his. I love that verse. That's almost sci-fi stuff, isn't it? You know, be able to move at distance at will, through doors. Time is not relevant anymore. There's a little bit of truth in some of this. Sci the problem is sci-fi is trying to do it man-made. God's going to do it God's way for us. We're going to get a new body fit for an eternal realm. It's going to be a rather marvellous thing in that way. He's going to be the name above all names. He's going to arrive back one day with Lord of Lords, King of Kings on his thigh. I don't know about you, but I'm not seeing any governments around this world or for the last 2,000 years who've said, we want Jesus to be the ultimate king. I haven't noticed that yet. Have you? Am I just missing something? Every government around the world is going to be surprised <laughs> because Jesus is going to ride back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his kingdom will be here on earth fully, completely. And we get to be a part of that. His name will be exalted. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. That's why we can know when we're engaged in the work of the kingdom of God because we're calling people 
to that in the here and now as well. Christmas shows us that Jesus will be acknowledged as the son of the most high God. Oh, marvellous day. Wonderful day. Lastly, Christmas shows us that we need to be involved in the mission of God. I'm not saying missions, I'm saying God's mission. And there's a bit of a difference in that God's mission is to bring Jesus to earth so that we can be made right with God. And our mission is to take Jesus to other people so they can be made right with God. And it's all-encompassing. And it always involves this idea of crossing boundaries, transitioning, divides between us and other people. Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours in Christ Jesus. So in the same way that Jesus left heaven, crossed the divide to become human and a servant and obedient and died on the cross, we're called to do the same kind of thing. We need to be involved in the mission of Christ here on earth. Have this mind in you. Leslie Newbegin says this, when Jesus sent out his disciples on his mission, he showed them his hands and his side. They will share in his mission as they share in his passion, as they follow him in challenging and unmasking the powers of evil. There is no other way to be with him. At the heart of mission is simply the desire to be with him and to give him the service of our lives. At the heart of mission is therefore thanksgiving and praise. We're engaged with what God is doing, example for us, achieved for us through Jesus, and what God is working by his spirit, we get to participate in the here and now as we make transitions to those around us, as we cross that which divides us from them in the here and now as well. It's an enormous task in some ways. Some of you know that we took our family to France in 2004 and, you know, we thought we can just stand on the street corner in Toulouse and shout at them all in English and they should be able to understand. I mean, English, it's the greatest language, isn't it? I mean, the Bible was written in English, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> but no, no, we, we had to learn some French. We, we had to learn to talk their lingo. And then we found that their culture is different as well. They really do food in France. Now, some of you from Italian heritage, you understand this, right? I mean, Italians do food. I mean, northeastern United States, we've got Italian people, right? You do food. You understand this. But if you're a white Anglo-Saxon, food is about 20 minutes, and it's at a hamburger joint, and you actually drive through to eat it. That's not food in France. Food in France is around the table. And it's two and a half hours long. And you have friends and you talk and you eat and you relax and you enjoy. You've got to think differently. Oh, it was a bit of an adaptation. We used to run a course for people who wanted to explore Christianity. And some of my English friends at our international church said, let's just do a baked potato with baked beans and cheese on top. <laughs> like, no, 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 that's not going to work. We're going to have to have a proper dinner here. And we'll talk in the in-between stages. We've got to adapt. We've got to, that's the culture. We're going to cross. We're going to leave where we're comfortable. Being English. And cross over into a different mindset, a different frame. Sometimes with a different language. Etc. 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 Jeff Van Der Schel says this. Uh, I've got the quote somewhere. It's on the back, isn't it? Let's read it. The biggest mistake 
I made was I told people to go be Jesus to people. None of you can be Jesus to people. Only Jesus can be Jesus to people. But we're still called to go across the transitions so we can tell them about Jesus, so we can be vulnerable, so we can tell them about what Jesus has done for us and what he wants to do for them in a way which they can understand. The same as God sent Jesus so that we can understand in our culture at a very basic level. He became my sin that I might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, you've got some stuff which you did. You got some stuff you did. Some of it's not very pretty, is it? The Bible says Jesus became that stuff so that you might become him. It says he bore it in his body. That, that's the great transaction. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. We get his righteousness. He gets our sin. It's a marvelous thing. And we need to find a way of crossing the divides between us and the world around us so we can effectively communicate that message to those around us. In England, and a large part of Western, Western Europe, the majority religion is called secularistic, evolutionistic hedonism. A religion answers the four basic questions. Where do I come from? What am I here? How can I know it? And where am I going? All religion answers those four questions. Western secularism answers those four questions. You came from a monkey. You don't know why you're here, so have a good time. You can't know that because it's a big guess. And after you die, there's nothing. That's the majority religion in Western Europe. It's rapidly becoming the majority religion in our country here as well, isn't it? We've we got to find a way of communicating that message across the divide because we don't think that. How do we communicate that to those around us? Oh, we have other religions. We have one called nominal Christianity. It's where you, you, you calculate how much good you've done versus how much bad you've done. And if the good can outweigh the bad, then you're probably going to be all right because God grades on the curve. <laughs> uh, and we have another religion called Islam, which says that you can't know what God is thinking, but he's there, he's one God, and, and it, you, know, you can do some things which might get you to heaven. And we believe Jesus is a prophet, incidentally. And we sort of believe the New Testament might be true, but you Christians corrupted it. It's kind of interesting. We've we got some other religions as well. We've got New Age religion, which says it's all about here and now. You can't know nothing else. And you get to go around twice or three times or four times or however many it takes to get to Nirvana. It's really, it's a miserable religion as well. <laughs> and it's sold as a peace religion in Europe. But Buddhist society is one of the most violent societies on earth. It's not a peace religion at all. We've got to find ways of crossing those divides as Christians to communicate the truth of who Jesus is, who God is, and what he's done for them. And they can have life in abundance now, not just a museum piece going on to be regarded in all the future. Verses 12 through 13 in the book of Philippians Paul tells us in this passage, he says in verse 4, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, left heaven, left his comfort zone, left where he was known full of glory, and now he, he's taken on humanity, 
And not just a king humanity, but a baby to grow up and humbles himself, then dies and dies on a cross. Have that heart in yourself, he says. And then he continues the thoughts. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we result of God done for us we have salvation we know redemption we know forgiveness we know peace we have the sense of God in our hearts because of his spirit that's an enormous thing incidentally that's what Pentecost shows us we're meant to work out that salvation in fear and trembling not work for but work out I already have it now I start to live it out in my life In fact, if I'm a Christian, a true Christian, I can do nothing but start to work out this salvation. Not work for it, I've already got it. But work it out. Tell others about it. Start to live a life that reflects that I don't want to do the things I used to do, but I do the things which Jesus wants me to do now. I live differently as a result. I do it because... Because I'm, the motivation is from the inside. Because it is God who works in me, in you. Both to will and to work. He gives the desire and the ability. Sometimes we think that people who've become Christians should live like those who've been Christians for 20 years. Why? It doesn't work that way, does it? You know, my first few years as a Christian, I was trying to figure out how to stop smoking, stop drinking and chasing women. You know? I did some things I'm not ashamed of, I'm ashamed of, you know. But I've worked, I'm on a different level these days. I still struggle a bit with the smoking. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but you work because the desire was from inside. It wasn't external, it was internal. Somebody didn't have to come along and put a, a system on me and say, you need to do this. God says do this. No, no, God was inside doing something in me. So I could start to live it out through my life. God was at work in me. And then we've got this idea that we need to identify with people. We need to understand where they're coming from. But it says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's not that we're in the world and of it. It's we're in the world and not of it. We don't have to become an alcoholic to relate to alcoholics. We don't have to become a womanizer to relate to womanizers. I don't know how the women do that because I'm not a woman, so you'll have to forgive me on that one, ladies. I don't have to become a greedy, manipulative businessman in order to relate to greedy, manipulative businessmen but I need to figure out how to relate to them. So I'm in the world and its systems, but I'm not of it because the world is a crooked and perverse generation in the same way that Jesus became a human and yet was without sin. Hebrews tells us really clearly, yet without sin. I need to figure out how I can make these transitions. I need to figure out how I can speak French without sinning. I... Tim's way better at speaking French than I am. I can just about preach in French, but 
he has a master's degree from a French university. And, you know, I, I said to him one time, is he here? I'm telling stories on him. Old habits die hard. Am I right telling this story? You don't even know what it is yet. Yeah. <laughs> I said to him one time, he's 17, 18, and he's, you know, he was a, he lettered in three sports before he left the US and then he went to France and they just don't do sports the same way as we do them here, you know. The killer instinct isn't there. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, when you, you play basket, it's a social occasion. The reason French play basketball is to eat afterwards. I'm, I'm dead serious. You've got to think completely different way. Tim was a pitcher at baseball, and he used to get so frustrated in, at the fifth inning when they kind of gave up because they were four, four runs behind. <clears throat> you know? He learned his French on the basketball court. <laughs> I said to him one time, son, you need to just be aware that some of the French language you're picking up is not appropriate for Christians. You wouldn't say that in English, but you're saying it in French. You, you're going to develop a, a split personality if you're not careful. Yeah? So we need to figure out how to relate without falling into sin to those we're trying to reach. Whether it's language, whether it's culture, whether it's socioeconomic, or whether it's just across the street to your neighbour. It's still crossing a divide. still leaving something behind and going across to somebody else. Every generation is crooked and perverse, aren't they? I, you know your own society here. It's crooked and perverse. That's, but it's been differently crooked and perverse in every generation. Some of you know John Wesley. In the late 1790s, he reckoned that the whole of the 90% of people were drunk on gin every single night. That's crooked and perverse. I don't think we're that, quite that place yet. But it, but it has been worse and it has been presently. But every single generation is crooked and perverse in its own way. And we're meant to be lights in that world, but figuring out how to relate to the people in that world as well. That's the mission of God. That's our participation in the midst of the world as well. I, I want to conclude and just recognise that it's now 11... 28, so that means I'm officially over time. Are you, are you okay? Are you sure? I, that doesn't give you permission. That's me, all right? <laughs> Conclusion. Practically, mission is about crossing divides. Whether that's a, a full-time missionary or whether it's you as a good Christian wanting to reach out to you. It's about crossing divides from where your comfort zone is, where you feel comfortable, where you're recognised, where you know who you are, to into a different world where you're not comfortable sometimes, whether it's knocking on the door of your neighbour to say, hey, why don't you come to our small group Bible study? We're talking about who Jesus is. Or whether it's going to a different culture, or whether it's going to Guatemala, whatever it is. It's about crossing the divide. So five practical things. Number one, our thinking and theology, some of you are theologians, so thinking works as well, must be centred around the stories of God at work amongst us. As John says, we're in more trouble than we know and we're loved more than we think we are. Other way around, something like that. <laughs> yeah? Jesus told a parable in Luke 15 about the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son. It's all about God bringing people to himself. We need to have those stories in our lives. Your story of how that happened to you. And when people become Christians, you know one of the greatest services you do is every year, baptismal Sunday, right? I've watched it. 
in England. I hear the stories and I'm going, oh, God's at work in Mendham Hills. So exciting. The stories of prodigals, of lost coins coming home. We need to have that language all the time. Number two, Jesus' example. He served others. He washed feet. He says very clearly, I came not to be served, but to serve. My job is to serve Christian other people the world with the gospel. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. God could take you to heaven tomorrow. There's nothing stopping you going there. He's got you here for a reason. It's for his glory as you extend his work here on earth. Number three. Jesus knew how to relate to those who were different even here on earth. He deliberately chose in John chapter 4, going from north to south of Israel. Normally they went around the Samaritans because the Samaritans were not nice people. And furthermore, he deigned to speak to a Samaritan woman. And a woman who'd been married five times and a present person she was living with was not even her husband. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> That's not nice. And then he asked her for a cup of water. I mean, why did he do that? I think he's telling us an example. We can ask for help. If you go to another country, you have to ask for help. The new incoming missionary to France is sometimes really productive in terms of relationships because they have to ask for help. I can't speak the lingo. How do you say whatever it is? We've got to learn to ask for help from our neighbours. Not selfishly, but so a relationship can happen. Jesus knew how to do that. Number four, his example, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you want to be like Jesus, the religious should have a problem with you. And sinners should be strangely attracted. Because that was Jesus. The religious, the Pharisees, the legalists, the ones who are concerned about the outward form of religion should have a problem with you. But sinners, they should be strangely, they don't, why, what is it I like about this guy is what they should be saying. Because Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's in all three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, twice in some of them. Jesus was attractive to the sinners. We need to have that heart in us as well. And finally, Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might win some. He's prepared to change his life, to do things he wouldn't normally do, not sinful things, so he could relate to people who were not like him. To the Jews, he became a Jew. To the Greeks, he became a Greek. It almost sounds a little two-faced, doesn't it? But it wasn't, because his underlying purpose was to tell people about Jesus. That was what carried him through all the way. As the band comes up to play for us, we're going to sing a wonderful song. But in 2019, will you choose to cross some barriers? Will you take the Christmas message of how God brought salvation, cross some barriers, figure out who you're going to talk to, who you can invite somebody to something, so they can hear the gospel message from you for the 92,962 people I'm heard it's gone down. Because some of you who were the 92,962 are now here. Hallelujah. Yeah? How you can relate, cross those barriers, whatever they might be, to talk to somebody about Jesus. Because he's coming back again 
in glory. And we get to be a part of that picture then as well. Mm -hmm.